You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And this is just a checking in. So we're going to be real quick at the intro, folks. We are part of Osiris Media. And we've told you before about the Tapes Archive Show, which is essentially source audio for uh, newspaper articles back in the 90s. And these are great interviews that these writers did with uh, different people in the music industry and beyond. Right, Seth? You've listened to some of these. I have, and my mom has as well. You know what she says about them? The phenomenal. They're just phenomenal. It's raw audio. It's not your normal interview. And, and, and you know, it's raw. People- it is raw, but they're really yeah. good. Because- I love it. Well, you're a journalist, though. So, I mean, I think that if anyone, it's just, the, what's nice about all of these is that it's, the guy is not so surface with them. He, he really, he does his research and um, brings out a lot. And, and, and if you ever wonder, like, what it's like to really get the artist comfortable, he does a really good job of doing that. Don't you think so, Rob? Right. And also the artists, these weren't ever supposed to be published. So the artist is very relaxed. Very, it's kind of what we go for in this show in longer form. But um, their episode 17 was Alex Van Halen. So you Van Halen people, check that one out. Um, also, Seth, we have Jake from Umphreys. Um, we did this by Zoom. And it's him and his guitar sitting and demonstrating Eddie Van Halen things. We have done this in the past, as you remember, Seth. Yeah, but so just preface though, folks, when, sure. we call, when we set this interview up, this was part of our Georgia music podcast uh, series that we're building. Uh, this one is about at the drive-in with Humphreys McGee. In drive-in, drive-in at the Speedway. It's drive-in at the Speedway featuring Humphreys McGee. So we wanted to talk to him about that. So we pop up on Zoom. First of all, he shows up like right on time. Very Humphreys McGee, right on time. And knowing what the subject was, he still had his guitar in hand. And so we just went with it. And so that's, this is all bonus. This is all bonus. This was not planned. So if I may say, we did have a longer episode, if you like Jake with his guitar, demonstrating all a bunch of different artists, check out episode, what was it? It was episode 68 of our show. Um, Couple Umphreys McGee notes that I'd like to get in here as well, Seth, because- Uh, B flat and C, those are the notes they most often play. They, uh, Brendan Bayless and Jake Senega, they did a thing called Live from the Big Room that they're now releasing, and they're calling it So Little Hits, So Much Time. And it's really cool. It's just the two of them. Again, you're like a fly on the wall, especially when you have headphones on. It's like you're in the room with them. And they're like they're, a fly on a Pence's head. But anyway, go on. <laughs> um, by the way, as we speak, the election technically still is not decided. This is, this is very strange. Very strange. But um, we have... Uh, it's 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 available for stream on unlive.net or you can um, i mean you can purchase the download on unlive.net or stream it at nugs but it's really cool they do kind of some of the umphreys rarities uh like red room and no no opener or no opener whatever you want to call it uh attachments which i've never heard acoustic and they do some pretty cool covers pat Metheny, pink floyd it's really nice and the banter is uh, really what good what do they do uh the uh, last uh it's the last train home it's the one umphreys has played a few times uh, I love. I that. believe it's la- I believe it's last stream home, which would I think would be from Still Life Talking. Did I ever tell you the time that you saw Pat? I've seen Pat many, 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 many times. I lived in Boston. He used to play there every tour. Sometimes he would start the tour there and end there. I love the album I have. I have a vinyl of his that's just so good. Dude, when he had Nana Vasconcelos in the band in '83. How can I you tri- say that name but not like Simon Allen? I. <laughs> I said Simon Allen. Come on, what are you? Yeah, I... 
No, but I mean, we tripped and saw him at the, at the Boston Orphan. I remember Nana Vasconcelos had this big, like, sheet percussion thing. It was just amazing. That's on Is that kind of uh, like, uh, what's his name with uh, Trey? Uh, Syro? Is it kind of similar? Similar, but in, in a lot of ways, even more exotic, some of the stuff he was whipping out. And it was that As Falls, Wichita, So Falls, Wichita Falls tour. Oh, it was amazing. But anyways, by chance, was that in the fall? Uh, no. Oh, God, no. you are wound up because you're doing one of these auctions. So you're just going to drip horrible puns on us? This is getting ugly. That's enough. You've hit your limit. Um, but anyways, it's really cool. You, you, you can get it. Uh, there's merch for it at the website. Also, it's this time of year. Seth, do you remember one of your birthday gifts was the Humphreys McGee Hall of Fame 2018? Cracked which that is, open the other day with my son. It's awesome. It's fan-selected best versions of or just best jams, best standout highlights from the year. And yeah. they now have 2019 available, which I think three sides of it, if you buy it on vinyl, are that Ringo from, from – uh, from the night before New Year's last year, which a whole set that was Ringo with improv, with, with guests coming and going. Uh, that is available. And by the way, when they were um, taking in fan input, yeah, friend of the show, uh-huh. Sarah Yahimek, Yahimiak, Yahimiak, you f- folks should know her from Dropped Among This Crowd. It's a great podcast. She from sent what? me this, uh, Dropped Among This Crowd. It used to be called the Humphreys Parents Podcast That's or something. That's it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I was like, what are you talking about? But well, it's now named after a line from um, Haji Memashite, uh, which dropped among, dropped among this crowd. She made this really cool list of some of the best stuff. And for, you know, for about a month, that was the only Humphreys I listened to. I was just, oh, I'll just pick one of Sarah's choices. But now she's doing something really, really, really extra cool, Seth. Because we have talked on the show about, you know, of course, we're concerned about all the people in music not having work. And uh, the musicians are, have, are doing things like the lessons and, and web streams and, you know, they have their merch and all that. But we've been concerned about the crew. Have we not, Seth? Yes. Yes, we have. She has, been, she has put together an Umph Crew online auction. It will be uh, between Monday, November 16th and Sunday, November 22nd. There'll be official and non-official merch. So the non-official... You know, of course, the official merch is great. If you, if you want to donate, I love it. There's all kinds of great stuff. If you want to go to Humphreys McGee, you can buy the, by the way, the Hall of Fame on vinyl at, at the website. But you can also buy some merch from Sarah and help the crew. But the non-official is like fan-made items, one-of-a-kind items, collectibles, prints, stuff like that. Really, really cool auction. And where um, can they do that again, Rob? Uh, if you want it on Instagram, at Dropped Among This Crowd podcast, on Facebook, Dropped Among This Crowd, and on Twitter, at Among This Crowd. Go to those sites. In the coming days, there's going to be links to how this can all be done. And uh, 100% goes to the crew. That's awesome. That's awesome. Speaking of crew, Rob, I do want to bring up on another uh, thing happening. Uh, Positive Legacy has the Winter Wish Drive, where they went to music community crew, uh, to have kids and said, we know you're hurting. What is what holiday gifts do you want for your kids? And so they went ahead. They have a site now that has a list of all the wishes. And oh. now people can go in and fulfill those wishes. And you can go what? to positivelegacy.com, uh, winter wishes. You'll see it there. And I think it's about a week or two weeks that they'll be up there. And you you see all the toys and you pick the toy you want. So it's a toy drive like that. But it's really, really cool, really unique, positivelegacy.com. So I remember Sweet Relief. That. Remember Sweet Relief. Remember Backline. So many ways that you can help, folks. Um, so, Seth, so, I love I, – I don't know. One of the things I liked about this interview in the Zoom, watching Jake – 
play the stuff and seeing you react to it was pretty, pretty fun. He's quite exceptional the way he can just, and, and we didn't, we didn't pre-interview. This was all, we just sprung stuff on him. Right, Seth? Oh, it's very true. And I feel like, you know, now that we've done this a couple times with him, we have this unique relationship where he knows when he's talking to us, what he wants to do. And, and it's just really nice to be the outlet for him to do that. We didn't even ask him for the guitar. He pops on right at, I think it was four o'clock, right on time with a guitar in hand, smiling. And I mean, this guy has, he's very busy with his family. So, I mean, he's very nice of him to make time for us mm -hmm. uh, to do this. Um, and it's, it's, we encourage you to take um, what it's uh, live lessons, right? Lesson, live lessons. Live lesson masters. Live lesson, lesson masters. Yeah. And so what we'll talk about in the interview, but it's not just uh, guitar lessons. You can actually go through uh, a music education class with him um, and, or just do a hang with him. He's a, so if you like, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to do it on your own, that's where to go. LiveLessonMasters.com. I believe, was that Mark Brownstein who started that too? Yep, and Alicia and Carlton and uh, several others. Um, uh, great, great site. Lots of stuff going on in that, um, keeping artists really busy in this uh, strange time. So, uh, Speaking of Mark Brownstein, keeping them busy, yeah. I, was, I was texting with him when he had shows. They, they just played, the Biscuits just played a bunch of shows. And he's doing lessons the day of shows. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> He's like doing He's lessons, a... going to soundcheck, coming back, doing another lesson, going back, playing the show. Shows you that these artists are serious and they're hardworking. This is a job and they take it seriously. It's not just all, you know, eating Molly and playing bass. Well, I guess that was the- uh... That's years ago. Early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now he's hoping the Jets get the number one draft pick for that Clemson kid, whatever his name is, Lawrence. Oh, the Jets, the Benny and the Jets. The New York Jets. There's this amazing quarterback um, that everybody wants to get that's supposed to be. to Sports Radio with Rob Turner. Well, no, we're going to kick it over to Jake, who's not really a sports fan, I don't think. So, Seth. Uh, that's why I like him so much. Take He's us there, sport. Seth. He's a um, all right, I'll take you there. Terry, Terry Kath, he's, he's one of my favorites. One of those, one of those uh, real forgotten about guitar players, if, if most guitar players don't know about how awesome Terry Kath was from Chicago. Oh my gosh, like he used to flip Hendrix's lid back in the day when they were touring together. Um, Hendrix really? was like, that guy, like he even said it, and it was said by Hendrix that Terry Kath's a better guitar player than me. And, you and, riff and, one of his uh, lines, 25, 6, and 4. You often riff that, don't you? Is yeah, that his line? Which he has that killer solo. And he's just like, he just really wrangles that stuff. kind of like like the terry cast style real like relentless uh kind of like like we're like guitar players like michael shanker went you know like like with ufo you know he was like <laughs> so they would they would take like blues you know like the blues the simple blues but then they would play like classical um like violin licks like right 
right, right. <laughs> you would you would sprinkle in like that blues player, and then you would also sprinkle in the Dorian minor, which is like a violin scale, like <laughs> which is like Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> is not the blues it's like a violin classical scale right at the mm. end of the day so that's where it really like everything started to really make a big difference in sound and sonic territory when all those great british guys were starting to imply the violin classical method over the blues and then we got like deep purple and and you know then all the other bands you know led zeppelin <clears throat> is john mclaughlin kind of a patriarch of that sort of thing yeah, for sure. He was he was thinking um, what I really liked about McLaughlin is he could take the blues just like a simple pentatonic blues scale like this, which is the first scale that everyone learns pretty much. But it's the way he would bend it like like. He put this like a like a Middle Eastern or sort of Indian flavor to the pentatonic scale he'd go remember like the right so that was kind of his like uh introduction almost having like a sitar like quality to the scale kind of like that he would just burn through them too you know just like ridiculous speed you know, I got first, to see him with Shock T. Remember that? And that's even heavier. Oh, it was just serious. a percussionist, percussionist, and him. Yeah, you can just fill up all that space with just like how many notes are flying over your head the whole time. It's just like, whoa, you know. <laughs> <laughs> can you connect John McLaughlin to Eddie Van Halen? Yeah, for sure. Especially with like the, the speed ratio. Uh, like, like. So, so McLaughlin was a picker too. So I almost hear that like in something like Eruption, which is like that sort of mentality of, of like, as, as fast as like the human body can play something, they're like hitting like that max level of speed and like, especially articulation, it's very art articulate also at the same time, you know, like as long as it's super quick, but then it's, 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 it's clean. You know, kind of yes. stuff. And, yeah. and like, I think that's what the, the, it takes years sort of working on. Sure, it's a technique, but to play it really clean, like, like the mm -hmm. way you would uh, uh, get like your ninth degree black belt, because you could do like a certain routine. You know, the guitar is very much kind of like, like learning karate. And you go through all these different um, sort of plateaus and steps. And then, and then someone discovers something new, like Eddie Van Halen, just tripped everyone's trigger, and everyone was like, "That's not a guitar. That's a keyboard." And and they they did that in the studio and manipulated. No, he that like he was blowing everyone out of the water, almost magician style. He was almost like a like a sonic magician, you know. But one thing you've always said about Eddie Van Halen, you even said it on the show once, is that he was underrated as a rhythm player, and you point to the fourth record in particular. Can you talk yeah, and maybe I, give an example of that? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I, th I think Fair Warning is kind of like their, their real pinnacle as, as 
like just strutting and, and street walking men as far as like being able to write amazing guitar riffs. And it was very symphonic in texture because if you think about it, the bass lines were very simple in the, in the Metallica, or I'm sorry, in the Van Halen. Um, so, I mean, he'd just be, Michael Anthony would just be going. Something kind of simple like that. And Eddie's doing all this like, you know. kind of giving like an example like off yeah, the top yeah. of, like you would be playing all these different chordal structures that would be inside the key of a like say the the, the song would be an a and he's he's going through all these different chord sequences so he's making all this cool um polyphonic chordal energy kind of happen inside the the simple a structure of you know he's making it making it very symphonic for just like three instruments actually just two melody instruments you think of how simple uh the arrangements really are it's just a guitar a bass and a drummer and then david lee roth is going whoa over the top you know <laughs> so, so it's really like how how, how um polyphonic uh, his his rhythm playing was you know like I think one of my favorites off Fair Warning was was uh... It's just like there's there's like so much going on in texture and in kind of ingredients, almost like bass parts inside of like rhythmic parts inside like lead parts. You know, kind of like upper register. So he's like taking care of like the whole symphonic territory, like in in, in like the landscape of those rhythms. You know, it's like mm -hmm. really really changed the way people got away from just playing the blues right. you know just chugging simple blues chords and doing like say power chords which would be like scorpions you know he took it like beyond that and made it more like like added this jazzier element to uh to to metal guitar you know in a way uh, and that helped broaden their audience for sure because like more hardcore music fans were drawn to them yeah yeah and he was just doing stuff well I, I know there was a point in time where he got really into people like danny gatton and and uh, rye cooter so he was starting to like use his fingers more you know like doing like using more of like that chicken picking stuff like uh he would do like say in in hot for teacher 
And then he would, he would throw in like all of his other, so, so he would use like a country lick, you know, which if you played that on a clean guitar. You know, it's like, it's like kind of like up, it's like hillbilly fast country, you know, like a, like a, almost like a, like a Texas swing, you know, in a weird way. Have they ever done, have they ever done a, uh, a symphony version of Van Halen. Someone, a symphony must have done that before, right? No, you know, that's a great idea. Kind of like the way Metallica did the S&M thing, right? The like, sym sym symphonic thing meets Metallica. Yeah. I don't know, but you, you know what's really good, what's kind of comical is Pat Boone put out a record called No More Mr. Nice Guy, and it's a bunch of metal covers that he does with like a big band. Yeah. Hmm. You know? Almost like a Vegas big band, like a big swinging band. Some of it's actually pretty good. It's actually, the production's great on it. It's really it's really solid. And there's all these Metallica or, or not Metallica, but but Van Halen tunes. You know, like Panama, I think's on there. Hot for Teacher. There's like uh, 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 even like Dio songs, like um, Holy Diver. He does like a Holy Diver. You've been down too long in the midnight sea. Good stuff to check out. So How do you Pat, think he evolved into the Hagar era? How did he evolve as a guitarist? You know, I think what happened was, too, is right at that time, he wanted to make music on his own turf. And he didn't want to have to go to um, a recording studio that Warner Brothers told him to go. All right, now it's time for you to go record your music. We booked you time at the studio huh. with your producer. So he was kind of over that. He wanted to like get out of bed and go into his um, recording studio, 5150 studio. So that's when that sort of evolved. So everything on like that first Hagar record, 5150, was all done in his garage, basically, at his residence. So he'd, he'd gotten a great Neve console from like the 70s, a bunch of great analog tape machines and good in, in and outboard gear and everything. So pretty much that whole record and everything after that was all done in that garage, even all the way up to the, his last recordings were done kind of on his terms, on his turf, you know, hmm. and you could hear the, 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 the change. You could hear the change sonically too. When 1984 was the last like real studio record and then 5150 came out, there was a sonic change for sure. Like you could hear it, you know, and he recorded everyone from Nicolette Larson to Michael Jackson, of course. What are some of your favorite Eddie performances apart from Van Halen? You know, I always used because I used to watch David Letterman all the time. <laughs> right. So, so he would he would always appear because he would live right up the you know street whenever they were were in L.A. taping. He would always stop by because I guess him and Dave Letterman were buddies. So there's even a great hmm. YouTube of like all the collection of David Letterman performances. I always thought that was kind of cool because you never knew what Eddie Van Halen was up to outside of Van Halen. It was kind of cool to see him like in those sort of uh, situations, you know? Mm, yeah. Sort of just loose as a goose and Dave's messing with them and you know, whatever, you know, pretty cool. He had a pretty bizarre appearance on Howard Stern once, but. Yeah. You've heard that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, with Eddie dealing with all of his demons throughout the year, it's like he was such a hermit that I think that in, in, in the long term, it kind of hurt his, uh, his 
overall reality spirit reality a little bit you know it kind of messes with those those giants of rock and roll it's like it's it's really hard to be just like a normal person because as soon as he walks outside of his house he's eddie van halen to the rest of the world you know right so it had to have been tough <clears throat> i'm sure just dealing with with how big and successful van halen was and how he changed people's lives literally and made millions of people pick up the guitar and try it out because he was like a shoot from the hip guy too he he didn't know musical theory he just like hmm. was a, a mad scientist and just kind of felt things out and played by ear and just tried things a million times till it like it just felt cool and sounded cool you know <laughs> Like, you know, doing that stuff in your bedroom in the mid middle 70s, that's like, no one was really doing that, you know? Hmm. It was like trying to play, like, say, Jan Hammer or Rick Wakeman on the keyboard on, say, like a mini Moog, like the way they could do these cascading arpeggios. He was kind of trying to, like, you know what? Well, I could do that on the guitar. <laughs> when you're doing that on your keyboard, it's like, I can figure out that sort of um, authenticity on the guitar, you know? Keith Emerson. Yeah, totally. Love Keith Emerson, man. He's one, of, he's one of the reasons why I play, you know? Well, speaking of which, Van Halen, when did you first hear them? Oh, yeah. So, so that started early. I mean, I was a record collector by the time I was three years old. I was just fascinated. <laughs> just completely fascinated by, by the turntable, the magical idea of this needle that drops in, in the middle of the groove and sends... Uh, music towards that amplifier and out those speakers it was just fat it still fascinates me it's still totally i think it's a there's something magical still there you know mm -hmm. so um my aunt my aunt gail um had a boyfriend named clint and and he was a he was a rocker dude had long hair and i remember whenever we had a birthday or christmas or something he, he was always buying records and he always would would buy me a record or two. And I remember I was about four years old and that would have been 1979. So Van Halen one, it just came out in 78. Okay. So he'd gotten me like a, a deep purple record uh, called come taste the band and then got me Van Halen one. And then um, like a James gang record. It was like, it was for my birthday or something. And I had my little, I had a little stereo set up in my room at three, four years old. So it was great. You know, like I could actually drop my own vinyl in my own room. It was like pretty cool to have that as a kid, you know? And so instantly I I'd heard, um, you know, uh, uh, running with the devil was the first cut. And then it goes right into eruption. And I just, yeah. I just, I almost remember just the feeling and of the visceralness of that solo when you hear it for the first time and you're trying to uh, like understand it, you know, and, and it's trying to, you're trying to compute all like the madness that's going on in that guitar solo and how it's like, is it, is it sped up tape? You start questioning like what's going on, you know? Don't be but shy. Remember, you, you can demonstrate if you like. Yeah. So, so. So like, like those first three chords that he hits. And then we're off. 
So it's like, I'll kind of fake it, but he kind of plays a blues thing at the top of it. You know? And he goes up higher. And then he goes into the tremolo pick. And then he goes into the dive bomb. And then he does this, this, this is just kind of from memory. <laughs> I need a whammy bar. I'm like pulling. Yeah, right. That's, <laughs> oh, that's too much. <laughs> oh, my poor mother. I used to play that so loud over and over again. And it's I, like I'm actually alien. feeling bad when I hear you. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Imagine being just a little bit older. That like you know, you might have been a Neil Neil Diamond fan, and then all of a sudden, your son's like blasting Kiss and Van Halen out of there bedroom it's it was probably frightening for a lot of parents you know oh god yeah <laughs> eddie had to be part of your choice to play guitar when you looked at the music world yeah man i mean it was like also his attitude and he was always smiling and it was kind of like some this sort of no care attitude he was almost like this brilliant savant like it's just like he could kind of be in any form and just like kick his his heels around and it would all come out perfect. You know, it was like he had this uncanny naturalness that I think um, every dude on the block would like to be like Eddie Van Halen. That was like just his demeanor and class. And, and it was total rock and roll. It was total West Coast American rock and roll, mm. you know, to a T. You know, backyard party vibe, you know, sort of, sort of atmosphere. You know, it, wasn't, they never, it was never too serious. If anything, it was comical. Like they would rather be slightly funny than than too serious about something, you know, and then that related to all the girls and all the dudes, and it just it just was the perfect uh, storm for for the late seventies, early eighties sort of mentality, post you know flower child hippie you know sort of Dionysian era, you know, it was like the perfect uh, storm for for successful you know pop metal act. And to the opposite of punk, which was also going on at the time. Yeah. Oh, punk. The, the punkers hated Van Halen because it was like they're having so much bloody fun, you know. It was like. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did you see him live? And what are your memories of that? Of, of those yeah. That? Um, I did see him once with, with Roth, and that was in 84. Because, I, I mean, they, they were a touring machine. They hit like every small town 
in America. Every, any place that had an arena like Van Halen would play it, you know, which was kind of like almost to their demise a little bit. They were overworked a bit, I believe. Um, Cause they would just put so much into every show. It was just like, you know, well, he beat up on his hips too. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. When jumping off of Marshall stacks and whatnot, you know, not going to work. But I, um, <laughs> so, so South Bend, they would always come through South Bend and they hit here in, in the uh, 84 tour. And then I saw them on the four unlawful carnal knowledge tour in oh, Detroit, yeah. which was what, 91 or two or something like that, I believe. You ever cover uh you ever cover 316 was it 316 yeah man i love that tune. i used to like i just used to listen to that over and over and over again when that came out that was like the track stuff is kind of like a roller a rolodex you know it's like i can kind of hear it a few times and and imagine playing it and it's like because i know the guitar neck so well i can kind of see it then i can see like where all those (laughs) you know like black and blue some of that ou812 stuff even yeah i like i like I like all of it. He had a unique way of getting melody in there. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it sounded really, what's great is can you play guitar and make it sound really good in a stadium? It's like, it wasn't too noty to where it like got jumbled up in a huge room. So like his guitar still resonated and still had like a, like a, like a clear quality and just would roll over you in a stadium. You know, it's, it was like total arena guitar. If you really think yeah. about it. Because it had all that that intellectual gymnastics sort of in it, and it's like you can, you, it's like imagine being a guitar player and you're like, you're you're entertaining like thirty thousand people in in a room, and like all focal energy is on you. There's just like such a role that you're playing in everyone's you know good time, you know. So mm-hmm. it's 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 quite a like objective. Imagine being Eddie Van Halen and having that objective. I often think about that being like in a rock band and, you know, when we have those really big shows and like the way that, that visceral energy feels, it's like, I couldn't imagine being in Eddie's shoes every night like that. It'd be crazy. But would he surprise you live at all? Or was he more about doing a great job replicating what they had released? Well, he was like, you know, like a jazz horn player, you know? I mean, he, the way that he would just like, take every guitar solo and play it kind of differently and and sort of relate back to the studio stuff a little bit but that's the way you know a horn player would like blowing through their lines blowing through their arpeggios that's kind of the way he looked at just walking into a guitar solo like like head down and just
just take it, almost be saying like, like little sentences at a time. Like he would say something and then he would turn into a different character and do this thing and it would all fuse together. And that would hmm. be like statement, you know, be like these bag of tricks and he would lift in and pull out this trick and then he'd be done with it, throw it away. And then he'd pull reach into the bag, pull out another trick, try that one out, pull out, pull out another trick. He was like See, a master pulling those guitar tricks out of, out of his hat. You know? See, I just thought it was ADHD the whole time, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's probably the clinical, the clinical aspect <laughs> of it, really. You know. And the tapping, he brought that to rock and roll, but like Hubert Sumlin and some blues guys had done it before, right? Yeah. Well, even Steve Steve Hackett from Genesis was was like the first guy in like I think uh, a Moonlit Night, dancing a Moonlit Night, which is on selling England by the pound he does like he uses the pick so he goes like so so even Eddie Van Halen would tell you that well that's the first official hammer tapping you know like in rock and roll per se you know that was kind of like legitimately sounded like you know you know, it sounded like the Eddie Van Halen sort of open string, you know, concept where there's always an open, there's kind of like an open string. So instead of only three, three notes that I'm playing, I'm getting four. So it sounds more cyclonic and more like a keyboard, more like a, like an arpeggioed keyboard, you know. Yeah, the way you said it before really describes a lot, though, because when you think about a piano and how you play a piano and then you apply that to the, the guitar, I mean, there's there, it's just a different yeah. way of thinking, but it really does work. I mean, I, I never totally. considered it like that, but, but yeah, I get like, it. Like when, when you layer, say, all 10 of your fingers or do like an arpeggio from like, you know, left hand to right hand. You kind of start to feel that it's like a sequence, almost like a like a like a sequence that becomes a loop, like a mm -hmm. loop, you know, per se. All totally. right, one one final Eddie Van Halen question: Could yeah. you walk us through um, a specific song of your own and how it was kind of how it's a branch off of or influenced by uh, an Eddie composition? Yeah, let me think here. Think of. Um, Let the listeners know I'm springing this on him. So yeah, yeah. More of the beauty of Jake really, that he can do such a thing of, um, off the top of his head. Probably if, if I just. It's got like the polyphonic energy, almost like a cl classical guitar with distortion, you know, in a, in a weird way. So I've always liked the, the, that, um, you know, multiple guitar parts inside of one guy, you know, like. Mm say like little it's almost about like little things that i use that hen or that that halen would have used which is like say on that chord right there i'm gonna i'm gonna 
Go. Kind of arpeggiated, you know, which is like what, what he was all about is arpeggiation, taking one chord and going. It's like Alex Lifeson from Rush, like like it's kind of that that big stadium guitar again. That right. kind of guitar sounds really good in a big room, you know. Mm -hmm. Love it. What would you have said to Eddie if you had met him? Oh man, I'd say, well, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I thought I was supposed to be a drummer, and I, I'm always going to be a drummer. But I chose my weapon well when I when I saw you play and decided that that's the road I should go because it was the most expressive. And I would say, man, thanks for letting guitar players be like uber expressive. You know, like he was always joking. It was like almost comical again, the way that he would get these sounds out of the guitar. And it was like, like, like um, Muppet characters almost flying out yeah. of his guitar, you know? <laughs> so I'd be like, like, thanks for keeping it not so serious and still fun to play like rock guitar. Cause he made, rock guitar in the 80s fun for people to play it like it, it it upstarted the whole like shredder craze in the 80s and 90s where every kid was was like trying to you know post eddie and be like steve Vai and yingve malmstein and all these other shredders post eddie you know so it's it's like yeah i would say he kind of saved guitar in a way post disco and like and like sort of like battle charged rock guitar into the 80s and it made it a little bit more viable for for the masses and it, he, mm -hmm. he it was like it became a popular thing it was it, it like like awesome rock guitar became pop like it was it was kind of like it was a secret sauce there that was like i didn't even think they saw it coming you know how big it was going to get
missed us, we're back. I brought my pretzel. Give me something to write on, man. coming we hope you had a good time and remember the hangover was worth it thanks for listening people good to be back home we'll be back soon all right